Hello again, I'm Miriam Felton. Welcome to Yarn Stories Podcast. lovely fiber people. The sultry sound of my voice may be a little different today. I've had this wicked rhinovirus and I'm just now being able to speak again with a regular voice. Sounded like a 90-year-old lifelong smoker for a while. So we're in for a big one this time around. In fact, this is going to be a two-parter on superwash wool. There has been a lot of controversy over superwash wool, and I want to state up front that I am not against superwash wool. I think there are absolutely times to use superwash, specifically for socks, items for babies and children, and items for people who either will not or cannot hand wash the handmade stuff. But I think that understanding the processes involved in superwashing can help you make an informed decision about when and from whom to buy your superwash wool. To get into exactly how the superwash process works, let's talk first about the structure of wool. Wool is a lot like human hair. If you've ever seen one of those commercials for conditioner, you'll recognize the scaly surface of our hair. Both our hair and a sheep's wool are made of protein, manufactured and extruded by our hair follicles. In the case of sheep and curly-haired people, there are also crimp structures to the hair, but for now the scales are what's important. The way that wool felts or shrinks is that hot water opens up the scales, the scales move past each other in the agitation, and the wool scales interlock one strand of wool at a time, rather than having two strands of wool that can slip past each other. This is actually called a differential friction effect, meaning that it's different friction amounts depending on which direction the wool strands are rubbing past each other. This not only removes the stretch that the yarn or fiber naturally had, but it makes the whole garment shrink. I'm sure we've all seen this happen, whether intentionally or unintentionally. So the superwash process is meant to shrink-proof the wool by reducing the size and effectiveness of those wool scales. This causes some changes to the wool. First of all, it makes the wool softer, since you can't really feel the scales anymore. Second, it makes it less resilient in terms of bounce or recovery. So when you wash a superwash wool, it tends to spread more than the same wool would without superwashing. When I say spread, I mean that the fibers space out And for instance, a swatch that was four inches wide could end up being five inches wide, while non-treated wool would bounce back to its four inch wide state once relieved of the weight of the water. Superwashing can also reduce the weight of the wool, but that's usually counteracted by the addition of resins or softeners. Another change in the wool results in a better absorbency of acid dyes. This means that superwash wool can yield brighter colors and great light and wash fastness of color. This is why a lot of hand dyers use primarily superwash wool. So why is it so controversial? Well, there are a couple of reasons. Firstly, the primary way that wool is superwashed uses a caustic substance to erode the scales and then fills in the surface landscape of the wool with a synthetic polymer. Polymers are materials made of long, repeating chains, and there are natural and synthetic polymers. For instance, latex rubber is a natural polymer. It comes from the sap of the Hevea brasiliensis, also called the rubber tree. But the polymers that are generally used in this way of superwashing wool are synthetic, meaning that they come from petroleum products. The move away from petroleum products is one reason why the superwash process has been controversial. 
The other reason is that the caustic substance used to erode the scales is sometimes done without a mind to the environment, and the gases or contaminated water, depending on the version that they use, are released into the greater world to contaminate other water and cause harm to plant and animal life. There are a lot of other ways of superwashing wool, which we'll be covering in part two, but in this episode we'll be covering the main way that it's done, with the chlorine hercocet process. I had a chance to talk to Cliff Cox, the plant manager at Chargeurs, which has a plant in South Carolina that produces comb top in both superwash and non-superwash treated wools. I'll be interjecting some detailed science info when needed, but let's talk to Cliff now. We'll get a little further into the Hercocet process and how Chargeurs approaches environmental responsibility. I'm here with Cliff Cox, plant manager of Chargeurs in South Carolina. Hey, Cliff. Hello. So, tell me a little bit about how you came to Chargeurs. Uh, I graduated in with a degree in mathematics. Mm-hmm. Um, I started looking for a job. I uh, didn't know what I wanted to go into. Somebody told me to, to look into a job here. Mm-hmm. I was um, lived in a family who worked in textiles before all my life. Oh, nice. So it looked good. Yeah. I came here actually applying for a job in computer programming, which I, w- I had been doing some in school. Yeah. Um, but anyway, they hired me as a uh, as a, a management trainee, and I started doing that in 1977, and I'm still here in the same job. That's great. Do you use your math degree regularly, or is it more just background? <laughs> mm, you know what? Every day. Every day yeah. there's use of mathematics in, 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 in manufacturing. That's what I tell people, like, when, you know, I I talk to kids, uh, you know, groups of kids about, like, being an entrepreneur and stuff, and I'm like, algebra and geometry, man, I use it every single day. You have to have it, yep. Yep. So, Chargers, when was it founded? Like, what's the history of Chargers? It was was started in France with a French family, um, last name Prouveau. Mm-hmm. In 1851. Wow, that's a long history. They actually came to the United States in the 20s um, and started a wool combing plant, just like we have here, mm-hmm. in the in in the 20s, and and then later in the 50s, in actually 1955, they came to Jamestown, South Carolina. That's great. And started started this plant, and it's been here ever since, doing the same job. Processing wool. Processing wool. That's great. We have over the years, we have as a strategy decided to stick with wool. Don't branch out into other things. Yeah. Try to be the best at, at, at processing wool. And as such, today, after you know, lots of manufacturing has moved offshore, yeah. we remain the last wool processor doing what we do, which is producing wool tops in the United States. Mm-hmm. And part of that has really been due to the Berry Amendment, right? So the Berry Amendment was codified in 2002. Okay. The Berry Amendment is an amendment to the United States Code that requires the Department of Defense, basically the group that runs all of the U.S. military groups, to give preference to U.S.-based suppliers for food, clothing, fabrics, and other materials the DOD buys from suppliers. The idea behind this is to ensure that the DOD has consistent and uninterrupted supply in case of war or other conflicts. I don't know whether you can explain how that affects you better than I could. Well, the Barry Amendment, you know, guarantees that that um, military goods are made in USA. Yeah. Um, for us, we um, so far have a, you know a relevant amount of business, mainly in military dress uniforms. Yeah. So since since that type of garment doesn't need to go in in a washing machine and a dryer, it doesn't have to be you know shrink treated. Yeah. 
So you're doing superwash and non-superwash wool in your facility. Yeah, yeah, mostly the non-superwash. Yeah. Cool. Um, and you do, I'm assuming that you do other things besides the uh, Department of Defense contracts. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's just a small portion of our overall production going into military dress uniforms and some other some other garments. Yeah. Was the, the impetus be- behind adding the superwashing um, mostly the Berry Amendment, or did you just see that there was a uh, market for it in the U.S.? No, most of it. I mean, there's there's potential, you know, in the military, and we're working on programs now in, in for example, law underwear, wool underwear. Yeah. Um, for cold, cold climates. And what was um, the best? But most of it, most of, yes, most of it <laughs> right now um, goes into socks. Oh, interesting. Like yeah. smart wool kind of, like wool socks, like yeah, exactly. knitted wool socks. Yeah, exactly. That's great. Yes. We've seen in the in the hand knitting industry and the you know like hobby fiber industry, we've seen our own uh, coming back to to U.S. production. Uh, we've seen a lot of hobby flocks or um, you know somewhat larger flocks being processed separately, so that it's 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 niche market you know of like U.S. grown U.S. spun wool. Yes. So it's really, it's, I think it's really important that we have U.S.-based institutions that are doing this and that we bring textile back to the U.S. Yes, of course. So how long have you guys been superwashing wool? Uh, well, actually, we had a superwash plant um, for about 10 years until 1998. That closed mm-hmm. um, with, with the business climate at that time. Yeah. And then we opened it back up. Well, actually, we put in a new plant um, in 2011. Yeah. And that plant's still running today. Cool. You use the Hercoset 125 process. Can you describe that to me? Yeah, you, it's loosely called chlorine Hercoset, mm-hmm. um, but neither one of the terms are actually accurate. Okay. Um, first of all, we can talk about chlorine later because it's a bigger discussion. Yes. But first of all, we don't use chlorine gas. Okay. And the word Hercoset is a brand name yes. for, a, for, for a wet strength resin. It's a cationic polymer, yeah. Exactly. It's just it's the, originally from the Hercules Incorporation, then it, then it went to a company called Ashland. Um, can still be purchased. It's, yeah, it's just a brand name for, for, for a commodity product. Yeah, that makes we sense. We actually purchased one similar, it's the same, from um, Georgia Pacific. Mm-hmm. And Georgia Pacific manufactures it for their own purpose of, of paper products. Oh, interesting. So it's used in that too. The wet strength resin is actually what's used on paper products to keep them from falling apart when they get wet. Oh, And cool. so if you wanted to if you wanted to look at the, the wet strength resin in terms of bulk in the United States, there's something about maybe 3,000 times as much used in, in paper, paper products industry. as it is in wool. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's definitely you know a useful product whether you're talking about wool. It's or a not. commodity product. Yeah. Very very heavily used. Yep. Awesome. So as Cliff states, the Hercoset 125 analog that they use at Chargers, which Cliff calls a wet strength resin, is primarily sold as a paper additive. In fact, Georgia Pacific, the company that Chargers gets the polymer from, is one of the world's largest manufacturers of paper products, as well as construction products and commercial supplies like paper towels and soap dispensers. The wet strength resin allows paper, which is made of cellulose pulp primarily, to stay solid when introduced to water, meaning that if you spill your tea or coffee on your monthly report, it doesn't just turn back into pulp. As for the chlorine... Um, well, we don't use chlorine gas. Yeah. We use we we have a, a chlorination effect to the wool fiber 
that come from combining sodium hypochlorite and sulfuric acid. Okay. When you combine those two in water, the sulfuric acid liberates the chlorine, okay. and it forms in the water hypochlorous acid. This this acid is what does the action. So it's all within the water rather than being a gas and gassing the wool. It's already in the water when it liberates the chlorine, okay. and the chlorine then immediately goes to a hypochlorous acid, mm-hmm. and that acid is what erodes the scales and, yeah. and makes the scales of the wool fiber less aggressive. Yeah. Okay, so you use the, the chlorination process, water-based, not gas-based, um, to right. to descale the wool fibers, and then... Yeah, it doesn't really descale. It just erodes the, the tip ends or the, the aggressive parts of the scale to make them just a little less aggressive. Oh, okay. So it just makes them smaller and softer. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Because otherwise, like, you'd need more... Well, you would need a lot more polymer to cover them if they weren't so, you know, if they weren't eroded a little bit. Right, right. Okay, and then right. and then they're coated in that polymer. Yes. Now, just to make make sure we understand, yeah. it's not really a full coating like painting with a paint. Mm-hmm. It does coat it, but it but it it allows the wool to maintain its original qualities of yeah. being hygroscopic or breathable. Yeah. So, so it's not a it, full coating. Like, if we're looking, uh, you know, microscopic level, does it just kind of, like, fill in the, the holes underneath the scales? Yes, yeah, or something like that. Okay, right. that makes sense. Something like that. Okay. Um, so there's a concern about the chlorination process and the water that's left over. What kind of yes. wastewater management do you guys do? Well, we have our own wastewater treatment facility. Uh-huh. We, we have an anaerobic and, a, and then an aerobic process. Mm-hmm. Um, we do, I mean, we do are, are concerned about the, the, the chlorine that yeah. causes AOX is what it's called um, in the environment. It, AOX is a, is a substance that is a kind of a grouping of substances. It's absorbable organic halogens, and these halogens can come from chlorine, bromine, or iodine. Okay. The concern with AOX is that if the water is released into the greater water system, it can cause soil toxicity and accumulate in aquatic life. AOX that is absorbed through contaminated food can cause a lot of problems in humans, like developmental delays and hormone disruption. So treating the wastewater that's contaminated in the chlorination process is really important. In fact, some plants don't use a water-based chlorination system. They use a chlorine gas, which is more toxic to humans. What's coming from chlorine uh, can be actually two different types. If you're using chlorine gas, you can have what's called a polychlorinated AOX. Polychlorinated is not degradable. Okay. It's going to be stable in the water and stick around. It can build up in the environment, and it's, it's bad. You're right. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Um, if The way we use it, using it with the hypochlorite, it produces a monochlorinated AOX, okay. which can be broken down. So we that's tested what that in our plant. Okay. So that's what yes. your wastewater yes, we, management is taking care of. It's, it's degrading that yes. so that the water is then safe. It does. It degrades it, um, okay. but but not only degrades it because the the um, the plant won't break down the polychlorinated AOX if yeah. we have that. But but we have tested you know the influent and also the effluent of, to our plant. Influent and effluent are the technical terms for incoming and outgoing water. And we can see that there's a big degradation in AOX, which okay. means it's the type that does break down. Good, good, good. Let me put this in a bit of perspective. This plant is in the U.S., and it's subject to EPA regulations that require water testing and safety inspections. And in fact, on the day that I spoke with Cliff, 
he met with a workers' compensation company that was trying to get Charger's business. So this is a superwashing facility that is trying to make good choices for their workers and their community. I imagine that superwashing plants in the EU have similar environmental impact regulations, but superwash wool from China is less likely to meet these standards. So where your superwash wool is superwashed can make a huge difference. I'm also not saying that all Chinese superwash wool facilities are bad, but until suppliers ask the question of any superwash facility anywhere, we won't know. There are some other approaches to superwashing wool that are becoming more scalable. There's um, an enzyme-based process that's still relatively new. They're working on making it more scalable for for larger production. Are you guys looking into those? Are you considering, you know, switching if it ever becomes viable? Yes, we have um, some some people in our group that are working on that. It's not here in the U.S., but it it is in the group. Nothing right now is is commercially viable. It's either too expensive or, or, or it can only be done in small batches processing. Exactly. This enzyme-based process is interesting. It's been around for a while, but the reason it hasn't been scalable is the time it's taken for the enzyme to strip the scales. If you're a chemistry enthusiast, I've linked the study abstract in the show notes for you. But for everyone else, let me sum it up. The time it took the enzyme process to erode the scales is resulting in a penetration of the wool fiber deeper than just the cuticle which contains the scales. It was getting into the core of the fiber as well, which degraded the strength of the wool fiber and then made it more brittle and prone to breakage. So this study came up with a way to speed up the enzymatic process so that the wool could be descaled without the additional degradation of the core of the wool fiber. Interestingly, the study I read about this enzyme technique was being carried out in China. So, you know, not black and white, no evil empire, no bad guys, just people with different value sets of what's important to them and what they choose to focus on. So it's coming one day. We just don't know yeah. which, which way it's coming from, <laughs> whether it's going to be from the enzymes or some other treatment, but it will come. Yeah. So here's something to think about. The polymers involved in superwash wool are only one single environmental focus. As with all fiber production and dyeing, there is a lot of water usage. In an ideal world, every sheep would be raised humanely, shorn without injury, its wool would be processed with minimal water usage, and then dyed with zero toxic impact on the environment. But let's be honest, the likelihood that we will find a supplier who not only meets all of these needs, but also makes every yarn we would ever want to knit with is very unlikely. This is why I don't see this issue as black and white. You can want to live a plastic-free life, but I will never begrudge the plastic in my father's pacemaker, for instance. Plastics are integral to our current life. And so choosing which ones you want to support and which ones you don't is a personal decision. It's all a matter of degrees. All we can hope for is to make less of a severe impact on this planet or to offset the non-sustainable things that we do with a little more sustainability where we can get it. And I realize that this is a privilege that we have in a rich country as people with disposable income. We are not limited by what we can purchase to what is absolutely necessary to survive. By virtue of the fact that you're listening to this podcast on a smartphone or on a computer or on a wireless device in the safety of your own home, that you have a safe home, that you downloaded it from the internet, which you have access to, and you're probably going to eat until you're full tonight. You know you are in a privileged position in this world. We are privileged to be able to worry about sustainability. This is a process and a journey that we are on. Just because I have the luxury to think about the sustainability of my luxury items, namely yarn in this case, doesn't mean that you do. And I understand that. 
But to those of you who can spend your money on luxuries, maybe it's time to ask your favorite yarn mongers to find out where their superwash wool is processed. Chances are good they don't know. But we can make it a selling point for people who care about it to know how their wool is being treated. What's your approach to sustainability and environmental impact for your company? Well, we as a group, a, a, a multinational group, we are we have that at the top of our list. Yeah. We are um, working on different environmental initiatives. Uh, wastewater treatment is one of them. And, and we do have our own plant, so we have full control of what leaves our mill and goes to the environment. It doesn't go yeah. through a municipality or... Yeah. or through a county land landfill process or treatment process. That's good. So we have initiatives in place. AOX is one of the things we're concerned about, and we, we work on that all the time. Yeah. But we think that there will be a development of something that replaced the Hercocet, the chlorine Hercocet process. Mm-hmm. When it comes, we'll certainly employ that here. Yeah, for sure. If there's a safer process that doesn't require you to do so much water reclamation, then like that would be good for you in the end anyway. Yes, of course. But on the, on the other hand, all the wool that we get, which comes in greasy form, um, yeah. it's just been shorn from the sheep. Yep. We have to wash it, and there's, there's no way to get away from having a wet process. No, there's always going to be water involved in wool. Yeah. So let me be absolutely clear. I am not telling you what to do or what choices you should make around your yarn selections. I am not suggesting we boycott anyone. My goal here is to inform. If that information moves you to make choices or ask your favorite yarn monger to find out what process and where their wool is superwashed, cool. If you take this info and do nothing with it, that's also fine. I am not here to police your choices. For me, I am trying to leave a smaller footprint on this earth and do at least a small part to help us sustain this earth since it's, at least for now, the only planet we have to live on. We are all at different places in our lives. I have been at the point where the only new yarn I could buy was a $5 thrift store sweater or a $2 ball of cotton from Walmart. I'm extraordinarily fortunate now that I can afford really good yarn and afford to make the choice of natural fibers over synthetic fibers and the choice of sustainably sourced over higher impact yarns. But that may not be where you are. I am not judging you. I just want you to know where your yarn is coming from. What you do with that information is up to you. And even if you are also concerned with sustainability, maybe you're focused on your gasoline usage or your carbon offsets, and so maybe you buy yarns that are produced locally and it doesn't matter how they're produced. I'm not trying to shame anyone or tell you what to do with your money or your time. This is just information, okay? There is a lot of fear-mongering on the internet. People saying that superwash wool is no longer wool, or that you should never ever use superwash wool. But I don't do absolutes. There are methods of shrink-proofing wool that remove the chlorination process, or like chargeurs, do the chlorination process responsibly, complete with wastewater treatment and reuse. There are methods that don't use Hercocet or a similar cationic polymer, but instead use a more sustainable source of resin. There are methods that might not be as durable as the chlorine Hercocet process, and as a result won't work for certain applications. There are just too many factors to make broad sweeping statements about what is good or what is bad. I think that having domestic textile manufacturing sources is important. Therefore, I think it's good that Chargers exists in the USA. I think that having jobs that pay living wages to employees of these factories, whichever process they're using, is important. I also think it's important that employees be protected from toxic substances. So I support buying goods manufactured in countries that pay living wages and have environmental protection laws. 
I am trying to reduce my plastic usage, so I buy things in bulk and fill reusable containers and try to reuse as much as possible. I'm switching to reusable silicone and glass food storage since I use an appalling amount of Ziploc bags. I'm not here to make these decisions for you or preach to you about what's right for you and your community. That decision is your own. But we won't know what decision we're making until there's more transparency in our wool processing. So I urge you to call for that transparency. Send a kindly worded email, don't be mean, but send a kindly worded email to your favorite Superwash yarn producer and ask them if they know how their wool is produced. Ask them if they know where their wool is being superwashed. These are questions that aren't going to be answered until the consumers ask for the information. We're going to leave it there for today. I know this was a lot to take in and a lot of really detailed technical talk, so I've kept this episode a little shorter than an episode normally would be. Next week, I'll be back to finish our talk with Cliff and talk about some of the completely different processes and some of the minor tweaks to the same chlorine Hercocet process that can result in a more earth-friendly machine washable wool. I want to thank Cliff Cox and Chargeurs for talking to me in such candid detail about how they run their plant, and to Anastasia Williams, our guest in episode 209, for the conversation that sparked the urgent need to get this episode out there. You can follow me in all my making at Miriam Felton Knit Designs on Facebook and on Twitter or Instagram at MimKnits. Thank you so much to the patrons who keep this podcast paid for. You can join the patron at patreon.com slash Miriam Felton. You can also watch me make stuff three times a week on Twitch at twitch.tv slash mim is making. That's M-I-M-I-S-M-A-K-I-N-G. If you can't support the podcast with real monies, you can rate and review it in iTunes or share the podcast with your fiber-loving friends. The more the merrier for sure. If this podcast helped you understand something new or gave you a deeper insight, I would really appreciate it if you could support me with rating, reviewing, or even buy me a coffee. You can do the coffee thing at ko-fi.com slash Miriam Felton. This two-parter required a lot of coffee, let me tell you. Chemistry lingo is no joke. You can follow the podcast on social media via Facebook. Search for Yarn Stories Podcast with no space between yarn and stories. Twitter at Yarn Stories Pod or Instagram at Yarn Stories Podcast. This podcast was produced in Salt Lake City, Utah with production help from Sid Fallon. Music is by the ever-elusive Breakmaster Cylinder. I'll be back next week with the ending of this two-parter. Hey, babe. Hi. What you doing in the closet? <laughs>